Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. Today, I am joined by Shannon Leitz, an award-winning cybersecurity expert and leader whose research and innovations have been instrumental in changing how companies implement software security, and she has brought to the forefront the critical need for security metrics. Shannon holds 41 cloud security patents and is widely recognized as the key leader in the DevSecOps movement. Shannon has over two decades of experience pursuing advanced security defenses, and she has held senior executive cybersecurity positions at leading software companies. I'm joined today by Shannon Leitz, one of the foremost thought leaders in the information security and cyberspace. Shannon, it's a pleasure to chat with you again. How are you? Sean, as always, is so great to be here with you, and I just enjoy to have our conversations. Shannon, for um, a lot of the folks that are listening today, we've run across a lot of your work, a lot of your research, a lot of your contributions. But one of the bodies of work that you were directly responsible for and helped really get out industry-wide was the creation evangelization and education around DevSecOps. And I know some folks call you the queen of DevSecOps, and I understand that some others might call you the dark queen of DevSecOps. (laughs) Yeah, I guess when they Twitter that, right? (laughs) (laughs) Could you share with us a little bit about how that all came to be and also provide a perspective in terms of how do you feel the industry has taken towards adoption of many of the principles that you set forth all those years ago? Yeah, it's a really good question. So it's been like 10 years. Actually, this was our 10-year reunion at RSA for the DevOps day. And looking back, studying it, really thinking deeply about what's been going on and how have we emerged as an industry. We've made some real advancements. Security isn't as much of an afterthought, but I do think that we still have some, you know, we have some work to do. Where are we in the journey? I, at one point, thought 10 years was going to be enough. And at this point in my career, I don't think it will be enough. If the industry had stayed where it was, maybe 10 years was enough, but the industry has advanced since then. We we have a ton more things, Kubernetes and AI and and whatever gets dreamt up next. And I'm sure there will be plenty of things for us uh, to come. But if I if I look back 10 years ago when it all started, why did it start? Well, a whole lot of traditional security and agile just in constant conflict. And then you enter into it public cloud and companies wanting to knock down that last barrier, if you will, to be able to compete. And so enterprise companies at that point were nervous about moving to the public cloud They were nervous for a good reason. The public cloud didn't have a lot of security capabilities in it. So those companies who were embarking on the journey had to build their own, which, as we all know, can be a big challenge, especially in an environment where you don't own hardware. Because back then, there was a lot of network security, if you will. And so DevSecOps was born out of sheer need. 
literally sheer need. There was some other stuff that was happening in the industry at the time. You had folks in the rugged DevOps environment who were starting to push on and create their own capabilities. But when you went out to ask for practical guidance, literally like, hey, I'm going after the cloud, what should I do? Um, It didn't exist. Hey, you're going to need secrets management. Who said that at that time? Not a whole lot of folks. Logging, application security, like all these different things that truly were, I think, a bit stalled. At the time, SaaS was out there. There were a lot of platforms or capabilities out there. But who was using them? And were developers even listening to anybody who was using them? And the answer was mostly no and like kind of. I can't say that companies weren't making strides themselves in the SaaS space because they were, but at minimal returns. Now, if you look out there, I think most developers know they need some level of SaaS. And that's a great thing. But I think that the companies that have been out there in SaaS have been very loud about being part of DevSecOps. So much so that DevSecOps, its entire vision, its mission, and what we're trying to get in the industry has been a little bit pushed aside, if you will, for some of the SaaS journey. And so, yeah, the SaaS stuff is out there. Folks are using it. You got SCA out there, source code analysis, for those who don't know, static code analysis, for those that don't know, and static application security testing, whichever acronyms we'd like to pull forward. I will just say my perspective is that the true DevSecOps mission is yet to be completed. There are some companies who have gotten to a maturity level that is absolutely magnificent. They are doing really well and you can see it in their stock prices. You can see it in what they're accomplishing. It's just absolutely awesome to see that they've put in that investment, that they truly care about cybersecurity that their products are becoming more secure. You're even seeing like product security standards emerging where they weren't there back in the day 10 years ago. So my perspective, DevSecOps definitely has a ways to go. We still have challenges around third-party products and ecosystem challenges. Accountability, where the heck are all the metrics? Why aren't we doing more about metrics? Why aren't we talking in measurement? We should be. We keep talking about how and how guides and best practices. Those are all lovely. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to poo-poo what's gotten us so far. But I do think that our future, especially in the cybersecurity industry, is about metrics, is about decision support, is about taking what we know as practitioners and really making it much more valuable to the companies that we service. On that point of metrics, I know that this has been an area of your research and work over many years. Decades. Yes, something that has always been a challenge from some practitioners' perspective is that there isn't like a place, a codex per se, that allows cybersecurity professionals to go and say, oh, here are the things that I should be measuring and reporting against for the purposes of knowing if my program is effective or not. Instead, we have control standards, which then become implementation guidance, which then becomes something that gets audited. But there's not a lot of that self-service. I can't just go and pull uniform metrics and measures specific to my own organization, let alone a third-party organization. Do you see that changing with the current 
types of providers that we have providing both security solutions and or cloud solutions? Yeah, I, I do think that for the full DevSecOps vision to come forward, we are going to need metrics. And I think we are going to need codified metrics. That doesn't mean that there's going to be a one-size-fits-all for this, because there's not a one-size-fits-all for business. Like, how you measure monthly active users in one company versus another commonly varies, even though you're both looking at now. So I think when it comes down to it, why are we asking that question about reinfection rate or, you know, and, and, and when we look at reinfection rate as a potential metric, are we talking about reinfection rate from the standpoint of a single device, a user, a specific malware strain? So I do think, though, that if we don't start talking about the outcome, we can't get the true accountability. In, and that leaves a little bit of room in the value that a cybersecurity professional can actually create for, again, the folks that they service and provide support to. And so in my mind, looking at reinfection rate, coverage, some of these pretty easy metrics, fixed rate, you know, if you want to really understand your SaaS product, um, you know, you will actually look at fixed rate. And your scanner is going to potentially cause developers to fix what they have or not fix what they have. Uh, and that is a good measure of whether or not something's working. So to me, I still think that the security industry struggles a bit with accountability because I think we've just become so accustomed to learning what a bad actor is doing somewhere else and then applying that. And I've seen this too often with too many CISOs where they've taken what somebody else had happen immediately sprung it into their platform and all of a sudden they're chasing somebody else's ghost and whether or not they're going to have that problem or not is is questionable but it, it comes back it probably even stems from the reason why metrics are missing in the first place you know like i said good question sean because they're missing in the first place because i think we really don't have a holdover what is an adversary and what does it mean to manage adversaries for companies? You know, if you, if you go look at like department stores, for an example, they have lost departments. Folks that are actually dedicated to looking at every person coming in the door, figuring out what their behavior is and finding potential areas of loss, knowing, hey, you know, if they go down this aisle after they come in the door, they probably are not actually looking for something in that area because we know that's where most loss happens, right? And so I just wonder why we haven't applied that pattern of loss and measurement and metrics in a way that allows us to be successful. Again, going back to decision support. To me, what a cybersecurity professional is great at is their ability to understand adversaries, attack patterns, give advice about what to do, study how to make those things happen in technology. But the days of traditional security where we were part and parcel of the, the quest, you know, those times have really changed and transformed. And, and so I think even just cybersecurity in general has had some impact. But your question around a common body of knowledge we don't have one because I think we still wrestle with what is common. 
and still too many people learning off of basically everybody else's incidents. The fact that there are varieties of threat feeds and information exchanges and all of the various volunteer groups or even those backed by the federal government where you're trying to sell to share IOCs or share particular lessons learned. My observation on that is that when you have a like for like environment or threat and exposure, those seem to be useful. But you're making this point where it's not unlike benchmarking in some regards, in the sense that organization circumstances are going to be completely different. So if somebody says we're in the business of consulting and we've decided to pursue a particular level of certification, is that the right thing for every consulting firm? Yeah. Well, the answer would be, well, it really depends. This seems to have a little bit of that flavor. Yeah, and and I think it is valuable to be aware of what's in the industry. But I start with, are you dealing with lucky adversaries or good adversaries? And And so I think too often people think, I won't be able to figure that out. Like, I won't be able to figure out who's going to be good against me. Who are my like actual, they only care about my brand and who are my lucky adversaries where I made a mistake and did something wrong and they're going to just get me because we didn't do the right things. Right. Those are two different specialties of adversaries. And I still think that the industry treats too much of the adversary scene like it is one big melting pot of adversaries. And the truth is, it's just not. Some adversaries in some locations care about certain patterns because they learn off of each other. And that particular pattern may be applicable to certain brands that they know about or you know stuff that they have access to. It's not uncommon for you to see that. And so the question is, is it really an adversary that's your adversary, meaning benchmarking is not going to help you? Or is it a lucky adversary? Or then there's a third, and I'm going to enter into this part of that conversation because, you know, as we continue to advance our capabilities through partnerships and SaaS, and not to be confused with SaaS and third parties kind of becoming part of our ecosystems, really, you also are now potentially going to have, you know, the lucky and unfortunate character. A characteristic of third-party adversary caring about you now as a customer of that third party because potentially you get them into that third party or that third party gets them into your environment. And so to me, though, there's still got to be these compartmentalizations that allow us to start to structure things like what we should care about, what metrics will allow us to tell the story, And in particular, if we're going to go out and look at other people's incidents, we should know how to bring that information in. And and all too often, I see things like the stoplight effect, to your point about threat intel and some of those things. It's all great. Don't get me wrong. But if you don't know what you're doing with that information, then actually you're the problem and not necessarily the adversary. And I think that's where I see some opportunity. Big programs, small programs, just not understand threat intelligence, not understand incident response, not understand indicators of compromise or even indicators of interest. And and that's where I do think there's still a ability in our industry to do better. You mentioned 
accountability and the importance of it within our space there's an entire organization often built within either a risk office within office of the CISO or even potentially in finance where they have some level of oversight in terms of risk that is accepted for an organization and and that isn't and then following up with ensuring that specific security controls at a contract level are in place. One of the things that I've observed is that a lot of those functions really rely upon subjective criteria and the responses often can be black or white. Do you have X, Y, and Z? Yes. Versus explain to me how do you meet this particular security outcome uh, from a controls perspective. But in the third-party space, this seems to be difficult, not only because there isn't an information exchange between the consumer to, let's say, a SaaS application and perhaps whatever else makes up that SaaS application with their third parties. So you start getting to this level of second level, third level to trying to understand, well, where does my risk really reside? Is it, should I worry about the fact that this SaaS application is actually hosted on infrastructure as a service on some other provider, or is that not a concern? How do you see being able to get a better sense as to whether or not a vendor is or isn't trustworthy? And and more importantly, once you get there, what mechanisms would one have or do we need to develop to be able to hold them accountable? Yeah, it's a good question. Trust accountability is very emerging. We're seeing the beginning of trust centers. But trust centers are being originated around security. And actually, trust is a business proposition, if you think about it. I'm buying for functional and non-functional reasons. The functional reasons are commonly the reason why a company goes to pursue a vendor in the first place. And the non-functional requirements commonly are the reason why you might choose one vendor over another. And so it's really interesting to look into this space and realize we just don't have what we need. So I think it's, again, going back, unfortunately, if we have all these questionnaires, 800 questions, this, that, and the other, will you really be able to fully assess whether or not a company's making great security risk decisions? And the answer is going to be no. And the reason why is because in the questionnaire space, there's a lot of contextual balance that has to happen there. So the real answer in my mind comes back to what are we trying to accomplish with third parties? Is it a lucky versus good problem? And very commonly, depending on where the adversaries are going and what they're trying to do, we'll see that it's a lucky versus good problem. You know, I I honestly believe that when we look at cybersecurity in particular, that's the biggest challenge. But when we have to weigh third parties, and this is where it really gets interesting, um, weighing across a company is a multi-capability problem. It is not a cybersecurity problem. It's not a privacy problem. It's not a sales problem or a product problem. It's an all problem. And that's the real issue about trust. 
So, so to me, you know, your question is really valid. Where are we going with this? Uh, I actually think trust is the future. What do you mean by weighing trust? I think weighing trust is about understanding what agreements you're getting into. So contractually, you have lawyers that are trying to create contractual obligations and liability protections and some of those things. But when you really look at that handshake, it's more than a contract to do good. It's more than a way of saying, hey, you're going to buy this and pay us that. And, and it's it's more than that. It's actually now gotten to the point where ecosystems are joining. Partnerships and offerings are actually becoming more united. And so when you look out at, say, a brand these days, it is a pillar brand of many other brands that you are actually buying into. And that's a really critical problem to think about because if we're already having challenges with dealing with security testing and privacy establishment and some of these things, what we're, we're not taking into consideration and we're not as an industry yet putting our hands around because we're still so wrapped up in the how that we can't see the why and the what enough to realize, hey, in some cases, some of these brands that are underneath that brand that's actually the one you're buying from, they don't matter as much, but some do. So as an example, let's just say in a Fortune 500, let's just say they had thousands of vendors. What percentage of those vendors would you care about having actual cybersecurity protections on? Many will say all. And I'm not going to dispute the all. But what I'm going to say is, that it's a forest in the trees problem. If you focus on all, you're going to get attacked by adversaries. They're more likely to be capable of taking on that ecosystem versus a strategic impact that you might assess for what's the most concern. Say, does it have access to data? What kinds of data? What level of impact? And I commonly talk about likelihood. So you'll hear me all the time, good, lucky, is it likely? But when I, when I put my hand on in a different fashion from a business perspective, the vendors and the partners that matter most in the reputation and trust that I'm going to connect with on a customer basis are going to be the ones that are part of that data flow, if you will. So who's got access to prod? Is it going to be a third party you brought in? Are you using a component part from that particular third party in your product flow? Those are really part of the essence of what I think is going to be the next generation of this problem space. How would you see an organization taking a contract where they've agreed to abide by certain security terms, kind of taking it to the mat per se, to really test it? beyond performing a traditional red team exercise, pen test, or your typical on-site audit that includes submission of evidence, et cetera. Is there a way that programmatically we might be able to get there over time? Do you think there's an appetite for that? My question is why, if you're simply asking about how somebody does something, do you really need to know? And the reason why I ask that question is because for the most part, what I want to know is that you care about something that drives you to excellence. So if you're not yet measuring, then I would say you're not being driven to excellence and you're just starting the game. 
But if you are measuring, then I think you're on the highway. And so for companies that do have control over understanding reinfection rates and which products are working and not working and some of those, those questions, if you can even answer a few of those, you're on the highway. And if you can't answer any of those, this is your awareness call that says you should be able to answer those questions because I can tell you that your customers commonly can answer those questions for you. Like as an example, great example, how long does it take you to respond to an incoming inquiry for incident response? That's a really great metric to be looking at because in the event of an incident by a third party, it's, it takes sometimes days for those third parties to get back information to a customer that might need it because they need to make a critical decision. And, and that's just too long. And so I think we've got to really, as an, I think as an industry, that's part of the trust paradigm. And I'm not saying it is the trust paradigm. Part of the trust paradigm is we've got to get our act together because there's so many parts of the trust paradigm that are ahead of us in this industry. DevOps is a great example, the Dora metrics that are out there. The fact that somebody can talk about their velocity in very significant ways, elite performance, those are really, really useful. Back to your question about how can I self-assess? We've got to get to the point where we can actually allow folks to self-assess and have a conversation about security without criticizing whether or not somebody has that knowledge. It took me a long time to figure that out. I will tell you, back in the day in my career, you know, if you didn't understand it, I, I didn't have the time to explain it to you. You needed to go get your cybersecurity degree. Today, decades later, as a much more enlightened individual... I was wrong. And um, I was wrong for a lot of reasons. Security needs to be simplified. We've got to make it so that we can get down to the essence of what it means in the business. And I think that comes through being able to weigh cybersecurity against everything else. Why can't you weigh cybersecurity or what I call adversary resilience against potentially velocity? I remember having to have that conversation around speed and ease. Uh, a long time ago, 10 plus years ago, speed and ease versus security. And I pulled my hair out trying to have that conversation because uh, what are you trying to have me do? And it took a long time to build the science behind how do I answer that question? The science, I wrote an article a little while ago about securability. And frankly, we should all be looking for that five nines measure, if nothing else. And I I would definitely be very interested in having a debate over any metric or KPI that we could leverage as an industry. Because my my first thought is until we put something out there that can be unified, that could actually serve as a tool like availability, velocity, right? All these like single number measures that are actually guiding lots of decisions in the industry. And by the way, availability is not perfect. So I'm not sure why security and its measurements have to be perfect before we do anything about it. Availability, there's tons of reasons why availability works and it doesn't work. And frankly, at least they have something to make a decision about. We are still struggling to decide on what the perfect thing is and have standards around it and, and whatnot. And, and I would tell you over the last, what is it now, six years since I started working on securability, it's guided a lot of the decisions, a lot of the assessments and the things that I've been you know, focused on leading. And it works. It's not perfect. It's got its own little chinks and things that we have to worry about. 
but it's a it's a highlight in what I think we start to talk about key performance in us. And without something that's a five nines, we will never be able to balance cybersecurity against everything else. Could you click into the concept of securability? I know that there's been a variety of different newer terms, cyber resilience and other components that are potentially adjacent. Could, could you give us a quick overview when you say securability, what you're referring to? Or potentially different words that mean the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, no, you know, one of the (laughs) biggest challenges in cybersecurity is we like to play word magic is the way I describe it. Securability is simply taking your assets that are most likely to be attacked. So your attack surface, understanding the threats against that attack surface, understanding that that is now your denominator and testing it thoroughly until you can resolve issues that an adversary could get to. And if you think about it, that means that the more you pressure test your attack surface, your denominator, the more likely an adversary won't have lucky wins. They might have good wins. And and frankly, we're not going to get rid of every possible risk surface in every organization across the world. But I do believe that the more we can take the easy stuff off the table, like as an example, why would anybody get attacked by a script kitty? And yet it still happens. And why does it still happen? Because everybody's talking about, well, this is the attack surface you don't know about. I hate to tell everyone, it's super simple. You have this thing called IP addresses. You have some percentage of those are live, right? Do you have to have a perfect count of your IP addresses? The answer is no. But you better have some understanding of which IP addresses are serving certain things and what are the threats associated with them. And frankly, you should have a running number that says, I think my securability should be around 99.6 today. And if it comes in at 99.2, maybe you're having a brown pants moment. I mean, when you look at availability, there's plenty of people in the CIO's office who are having brown pants moments when availability drops four points. So I just think we don't, we we haven't learned from the folks that are actually out there doing technology like we are. We haven't really crossed that aisle enough. If you do what I do, which is build code at night, you cross that aisle every night and go, oh. So velocity, I should think about this. Okay. But when I go to look at like, what should I be doing from a cybersecurity perspective as a small business owner, as a big business owner, it is a complicated mess of acronyms and language. And frankly, if you want to change the world and you want to be better at cyber, Stop using all the crazy language, simplify the heck out of it, put some measures behind it, and do the job. And guess what? We won't have a deficit in cybersecurity for skill sets either because it'll be easier. What you said was that triggered my little rant was cyber resilience versus securability versus, and frankly, what I will tell you that I have learned about this industry over three plus decades is we are really good at word bingo. To the point where in the middle of an event at one of the companies I worked for, somebody said, this is a high impact vulnerability. And then tee hee hee, it's a HIV. And I was like, oh my goodness, I can just hear the blog article being written 
already. And and it's yeah. that kind of thing where I feel like we just kind of have to grow up as an industry and do a better job. You mentioned the cybersecurity skills deficit. And I remember being in one of your talks, you were speaking at an Avanta event. This is some years ago. And, and you were talking about the type of professional that you like to bring onto your team. Mm-hmm. In particular, at the time, this was now probably seven years ago, you had shared that the way that you were building your organization, you were bringing in people that were hungry and people that were passionate, but you either expected them to have development skills to some level, or they were very willing to study and learn the prerequisite development skills to be part of your team. Mm -hmm. Now, traditionally in cyber, a lot of us have come from, myself included, speeds and feeds, networking, with a handful of us coming from software development. And I know you've walked all of those worlds, both on the infrastructure side and you've walked the software dev side. Does that view still hold in terms of the workforce and what's necessary to enact some of the things that you're talking about, which is whether it's the integration component or simply how we report out on things, how we measure things? Is that still in line? Is that still your way of thinking or has that continued to evolve as well? It's a good question. I have not evolved my practice of hiring hungry, willing, passionate people. I absolutely think that anyone can set forward and do anything if they're not discouraged by it. It's the folks that are looking to be trained or taught. Hey, I don't know. I'm not going to know until you teach me. Those folks need a different kind of help, and and I'm not that. And so as a leader, what I look for in folks to work with me are folks that are hungry, who want to basically take on big challenges, who want to go deal with some of the the biggest problems, I think, that are in the industry. And, And, you know, in all frankness, I think that has been a winning strategy. Over the last couple of decades, that's been my way of actually bringing new talent into the market. We talk about as an industry, we need to work on bringing in new talent. That's all I feel like I've done <laughs> over the last couple of decades is, oh, okay, so you're a, you're an author, a book author. Would you like to do cybersecurity? Do you know how to code? Well, I started learning to code. And so, yeah, I'm actually interested. Great. Here's a desk. Let's work on this. And, you know, some of these folks are the most amazing cybersecurity professionals I've ever had the pleasure to work with. I mean, I am super proud of the folks that have taken that journey and carved through the mass amount of information to be really good at what they do. Like some of the best secure coders in, I think, the world are actually folks that have started from very little. Like I can tell you several names that it would just be mind bending for you to know that they did not know cyber before I met them. And like folks that we actually know as renowned cybersecurity professionals, that's really interesting, right? Is that we have this notion in the industry that cybersecurity, it's just this like 30-year, 40-year journey. And frankly, in a couple of years, people have proven that they can do the job, but you've got to simplify again, going back, got to simplify the language, the way in which folks are trained, 
Uh, it's not impossible. It's just hard work. And putting them in front of something and saying, look, you got it. I'm here to like back you up, but no one's going to read that manual except for you. Yeah, it's true though. It's true. And I think it's always encouraging to hear that leaders like yourself are continuing to reinvest back to new generations of cybersecurity professionals. Because really, when you and I were coming up back in the day, there weren't a lot of us and the idea of mentorship usually looked like you're hanging on to your CIO or maybe like a senior director who is still trying to figure out their way through the forest. If I had waited for mentorship, Sean, it would never have happened. I honestly feel like I was always holding on to the job nobody wanted, the janitorial services rack and stack equipment, work on hacking on the side, what's NCAT, uh, what's like all these different things. And I, I think I was just fortunate enough in my career to find a few special individuals who actually wanted to see women survive in the industry enough that they actually invested. And so for me, it's a share and give back moment. How do we actually bring more women? How do we bring more diversity? How do we get folks in who want to do it, but have no idea where to start? And frankly, I don't know if you've done this lately, but just Google trying to become a cybersecurity professional. Who do you follow? Yeah, it, it can be very overwhelming. I've certainly had a couple of folks that I've mentored over the years that start with that question, where do I start? And often put myself in their position and I go, huh, where would I tell them to go now? And it, it's evolved because like you said, the diverse perspectives and backgrounds of a lot of the folks that are in the middle of it doing the job every day, they're coming from non-traditional backgrounds. One of yeah. the best compliance leaders I know was a QA specialist. Yeah. And a hundred uh, days of yeah. code will get you a development understanding, but where's our hundred days of security? Like, that's right. how do we just change and create ease in our environment. That's something I think we have to, as practitioners, continue to push on. And, and so, yeah, every waking moment I get, I try to push on little areas here and there, but it's an uphill battle. What's your take on some of the recent developments coming out of the federal government here in the United States, specifically some of the guidance that's come out by the SEC? Obviously, we saw the executive order from President Biden around zero trust and some of these pushes that are moving the industry, whether they're ready or not, to have more visibility and accountability in portions of what they do. What's your take on some of these legislative tools that are being leveraged today as a potential way of addressing some of the things we've talked about? Yeah, it's a really great question. First of all, hallelujah. And for all of you listening, it's your wake-up call. It was bound to happen. It's been talked about for decades that if we didn't get our act together, it would start to be regulated. It would start to push in this direction. Now, that said, my belief is that it's going to be an, an interesting and altering experience for many. The heightened requirements for disclosures, as an example. I think it's great because I do think that we have to have a better understanding of what's happening in these companies where 
they're actually publicly traded. So the fact that that's come to bear is fantastic, if you ask me. At the same time, I'm not sure that some of these companies are ready to be able to post that information. So there's an opportunity in the industry for what does that look like exactly? And and how do you put these programs together? I also think the other side is downside, which is, okay, so now that we're spending all of our time thinking about incidents, are we actually doing the proactive work? And so what I didn't see coming out of some of this guidance is the proactive requirements of managing the risk of being able to forecast and do some of the things that are necessary. But it's a good cornerstone step to have. It's just, in my mind, the beginning. And so you can see that when you look at forward-leaning statements, you have to be very careful about forward-leaning things and what information you're sharing and how you're sharing. I think those are always positives because I think transparency has been limited and lacking. And frankly, it's given too much opportunity to folks that have been in these chairs, I think, for too long to not necessarily deal with things that they have going on. I also think, Sean, one of the things that's going to be very interesting is what happens when somebody doesn't report an issue and yet the public knows about it. What is that going to look like the first time it ever occurs? Because let's be honest, some of these companies truly don't know when they're having an issue and they get told by an external a lot more often than we think. And that's where I think the SEC just doesn't get it right is how do you deal with that? And what does that look like? And so this notion of a four-day disclosure process, in some cases, what have we said? Hundreds of days before somebody knew that they had had an issue. And so they're saying it's a four-day disclosure process from the time you know about it. But I've seen all kinds of shenanigans in my career from what they call knowledge versus knowledge versus yeah. knowledge. And, and shame on all of you who do this, because I have seen some really crazy things like not calling an incident an incident until, quote, it, it can be dealt with. The word breach is a bad word. So anything that's in these government requirements, we're seeing the word game being played. And I, I think this is where... I think folks have to kind of, again, grow up and, and stop doing that because I do think it's going to be riskier in the future to continue those behaviors and not just deal with the issues. I love when I hear from Amex, you know, hey, there's something happened to your account. And, and thankfully, they're ahead in how they think about things when they deal with us as customers. But why do we have this lingering behavior in the industry when companies like them or companies like what you see with Equifax and and how they've become transparent? Like you start to look at all these amazing companies that are becoming more transparent. Why are there still so many people hiding in the shadows, worried about what's going to happen if they disclose something and deal with it? I actually worry more about those that think they haven't had or haven't disclosed a breach in the last like five to seven years, because you know, they've had them. And and frankly, I'm hoping that there becomes a little bit more transparency around what does the SEC mean and, and what is a small thing to report? What's a big thing to report? How will we get that information? Could it actually be helpful to have it? That's how we're going to win against adversaries. It's, it's not hiding. 
Do you feel that the incentives to be transparent and self-report are not there due to the historical nature of what happens once a breach or a major incident is disclosed, i.e. investor lawsuits, civil lawsuits? Is there a place in the future where these organizations that everybody suspects has been having issues, there's companies that we shall not name that we know their data is out there. It's been out there, uh, as you had mentioned, and they don't get called out on it until something else happens. Do you think that there's a amnesty that would be possible for these organizations to effectively come clean and true up in terms of their cyber controls? Because I kind of see it down going down this path where if you're now holding every single organization accountable in the way that you just described the the onus and the push towards that transparency might almost backfire yeah that's what i'm kind of alluding to is that i i think that there's the positive side which is hey if we could all live up to this it would be amazing but i do think there's that possibility of it backfiring and to some extent you're starting to see some of those things come to bear like how many people are wanting to be in the CISO chair is that chair now becoming more dangerous to your point about dealing with an incident and the amnesty associated with it. If you do your job, is there a possibility of having that safeguard or it's a hard space. I I think this is going to be one of those areas where we're going to have to see how it goes, but I, I think that I would predict that it's going to be challenging. And I think most of us know that. Uh, I could imagine that anybody who's sitting in the CSO chair right now, your job just got harder in a way that you've got to be very aware of. What do you need to do to be able to report these things? So if you look at an organizational structure, where does a CISO chair now sit? I think this is another reason for it to sit at the CEO's level because having it report to tech or legal or you name it, finance, whatever it might be. Those are chairs that are actually in conflict with some of the things that a cybersecurity professional has to do. And I think what we're going to see as time goes on, if this does work, is that we are going to see the rise of the CISO fight. And I think it will be, again, I, I think that's a good thing. Frankly, anybody who isn't doing that as a result of this ruling, you should be thinking about it. In part- particular, wherever you have this person now sitting, having layers in between them and the CEO and the board is actually putting not only them at risk, but you at risk and the company and its shareholders at risk. And I think that's where it has to finally get to the point where we have the accountability and cybersecurity at that chair level. That's a very important point. And I know many cybersecurity leaders struggle with this. They're buried down in an IT organization and the budget is all controlled outside of their team, the resources. It's a mother may I kind of model to get anything done. And I see the frustration with so many cyber leaders where they're just like, dude, I can't, I just can't. Like, it's not, we're trying to get this off the ground. We need to, we've informed the risk committee, but my business partners on the other side just don't want to budge because they're not incentivized to do it. Uh, But I did not say that cybersecurity would remain the same in my 
prediction of the CISO moving up. And to me, proactive security, moving that capability further and further into the business where it's owned is part of the objective. So each and every single chair at that CEO's level has some level of cybersecurity responsibility that can't just be pushed to some chair that's buried in the org And to me, that means if you're a technology professional, you have cybersecurity obligations and that cybersecurity group that now would report into the CEO is essentially decision support. They're able to help you with some of the things that need to happen. But I'm not certain that cybersecurity is going to continue to hold on to the processes it once had in traditional security that was many years ago. I think the advancement of cybersecurity is going to become more akin to a risk management function. You may even see the cybersecurity title start to change or evolve, if you will. But ultimately, the responsibilities of that reporting relationship being too far into the organization, I think, is a challenge. And I also think to your point, Sean, there is too much being burdened onto the cybersecurity team, such as proactive technology capabilities. You know, lots of different conversations come up all the time for me. And in technology, how do you configure something? Those are all questions that are actually part of product management. They're part of IT. They're part of all these different things. So I do think cybersecurity has to evolve where it can be more self-service for folks that do set up and organize these functions. The other possibility is we see the rise of a risk management officer to take on these cybersecurity capabilities for the SEC. And at the same time, you see the evolution of the CIO role to incorporate more security into that role where we've seen that evolution of CIO plus CISO, which is now basically they're hiring for a CISO, but it really means also CIO and, and essentially IT. But the, the problem space has been we've matched every security capability into this notion of a, a central security organization. And I think that's actually coming apart at it seems. Yeah, I think we've proven that model to not be necessarily the most effective. Yeah. Like product security belongs closest to the product. Like it's necessary. And I've seen it now time and time again, where it's been pulled out, pushed in hybrid model. What works the best is you put your security professionals closest to the product. It's part of the cost of goods sold. And you eventually end up with a great product that's also secured. And in the security journey, those folks are actually making that product able to be logged. It's got all the right controls. So I predict that's going to be another evolution. Last question for you. I'm curious your perspective on the impact to the traditional models of secure software development, the life cycles, the processes that make up that, and how might artificial intelligence make those problems worse or potentially be one way to solve for aspects of it. When you look at it, do you immediately see wonderful opportunities to address some big problems, or does it appear to be another interesting tool that could potentially solve other things? Have you given that some thought? I was hoping for an AI question, and I got one. Yay! (laughs) Um, You know, honestly, AI has a lot of potential. 
And I think that it's going to take us really far into our future from a technology standpoint in the industry. I also think it represents new attack surface, greater challenges ahead, and yet some more attack surface that maybe cybersecurity professionals haven't caught up with. Just because you've used a tool doesn't mean you know how to secure it. Just because you've used a tool doesn't mean you know how to understand its attack surface. And so I do think that there's more research necessary to make AI resilient, secure, capable. At the same time, I actually think the way you're going to solve some of those problems is actually through AI. So interestingly enough, I think that AI is going to help get us out of the AI traffic jam we're in and having greater attack surface is going to be something that we eventually solve with algorithms. Some of the best work I've seen lately has been in large language models around, to your point, how do you deal with what's the difference between this and that, whatever it might be. And this is where I think what's really going to be fascinating is when a large language model comes back and says, hey, those words all mean the same thing. And we find out that as a security industry, we've got lots of overlap and duplication and that we could actually be more simplified in our approach. I I think that's going to happen as well. So to me, AI represents a new frontier. I'm super excited about it. I'm forward leaning on AI for sure. And at the same time, also convinced that if we don't get our act together on some of the fundamentals, it's going to have similar, if not more problems than the current tech stacks that we already have. And that going back to your, that you alluded to, which was that there's quite a bit of burnout in our industry and cybersecurity. I think that this is another piece of wood on the pile, if you will, or a cherry on top that's going to collapse. And and so I don't want anybody to walk away thinking that this is insurmountable as a technology stack. I think AI is a crucial part of our future, but it's time for us to realize that differentiation isn't doing much for us, that we actually need to unite, that we need to come together that this notion of chasing incidents that are somebody else's problem as if they are our problem and spending all of our effort on it actually takes away from being able to build our businesses with things like artificial intelligence or machine learning or advancements that are actually going to continue to add value. And, and I think I'm, and I'm hopeful that we see the evolution of cybersecurity to finally take on and embrace what this is going to mean. So is there a group where, you know, to kind of put a cherry on top of this whole conversation, is there a group in your company that's dedicated to only AI? If there is, I think you're doing it wrong. If you're separating even AI out and creating its own capability or set of capabilities, you're probably not doing it right. But if you're creating a dojo of some sort, you're trying to build skills. I love what I've seen from Walmart and some of the folks out there that are setting up labs. You can see it across some of the tech industry. They're innovating and rapidly thinking about reskilling people around prompt engineering, which, by the way, is no joke. Prompt engineering is hard and securing it is harder. And by the way, if you thought that all the other problems like DLP were a problem, wait until you start doing prompt engineering and dealing with like the security of prompt engineering and both what goes in and what comes out, because there's just not a lot of tools to help you understand what's being submitted and how do you deal with it. And so there's 
I, you know, honestly, Sean, I, I think we're never going to see the end of need when it comes to cybersecurity in the industry. But I am hoping for its evolution so that we see a proper fit in every company and that as we see new capabilities like AI, that we embrace them properly and we don't continue this path of building something that somebody else has to care about. Shannon, thank you for coming on the show. If somebody wanted to double click into some of your research and contributions and what you're currently up to, what would be the best way for them to follow some of your work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I am working on right now the Rave community. So that's going to finally get off the ground. Um, I'm also working on Third Score, which is my company. And uh, you'll see I'm working on what is a trust accountability platform. Very excited about that journey. I think it's going to be a long one, but I think it's going to be a good one. And I am also very much involved still in DevOps and DevSecOps. And you can always reach out to me. I'm DevSecOps on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn and happy to have a chat, debate, continue to push on these thoughts and evolve my thinking. Shannon, thanks again. Always a pleasure. Yeah, you too. Thank you. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Cordero. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.